this month's podcast is a bit different um, with the discussions and themes around a trauma-informed Ballymun, substance use and mental health, and the Citizens' Assembly on drugs. So I would like to welcome everybody to the Ballymun Does Recovery podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Bell. I've got two guests here today, Liam McGowan and Trina Bourne. Um, over the last few months, um, we've talked about recovery on this podcast and one emerging theme that has emerged from it was mental health. So we've got two people in today to talk about how they coexist, how they come hand in hand, and just to give us a little bit of insight into the work that they do. So I'll introduce you to Liam and let him talk about his work and um, his research and practice. And then I'll go with Trina, if that's okay. So, Liam, right. I'd like to share. Cheers, Jimmy. Um, yeah, I, I suppose ourselves, Trina, myself, and a whole gang of people really in the recovery college over the past few years, substance use and mental health has just become so big and so unavoidable for us. So, um, I think the first thing you said there, really, in relation to what does it mean, this thing called dual diagnosis, is interesting because if we use that language, with people who might have mental health and substance use problems, they don't like it. They it's, it's a double stigma as far as they're concerned. Um, and if we use it in terms of how we respond to people who have substance use and mental health issues, it's not helpful either, unless you're looking at some sort of really specialist kind of service. So, But we still use it, because we use it politically. Because um, as, as you'll know, for years and years and years, substance use, even substance use was separated between alcohol and drugs, and then there was mental health and different government departments and different policies. So the idea of somebody who had a lot of needs associated with substance use and mental health, um, getting those needs met was almost impossible because of the service orientation responding to policy um, and government departments. So we used dual diagnosis politically to keep it on the agenda. But we can conservatively say that at least 50% of people who might be using homeless services, who might be using substance use services, might be using mental health services, have got some sort of relationship between the two. And it's not a chicken and egg thing. There's a relationship between the substance use and the mental health issues. Uh, and whatever that is, that's part of the, I suppose, the exploration and the healing journey for a person. Um, our work, um, I suppose our work, goes back to 2004, actually. The, the first national study on dual diagnosis uh, ever taken place in Ireland, which, which we led out in DCU. And we tried to get government to respond to that. They responded somehow in the mental health policy. But then what they brought into the policy then wasn't evidence-based. Uh, and it didn't happen anyway. Um, and there's been no other national study published since 2004, which is a bit which is a bit kind of unusual, um, although everybody in the street knows that it's needed. You know, in your work, in our work, we know that it's actually, it's there. It's like it's, it's, it's been, it's the elephant in the room, really. Um, so our work um, with the Recovery College, the Dublin North Northeast Recovery College, has been for the past three years being either commissioned or a 
putting in proposals to work with communities around substance use and mental health issues. Uh, and a lot of that is across kind of North Dublin, you know, Fingus, Cabra, um, North East Inner City Dublin, actually across the, across the river as well, doing bits of work there um, and probably moving up north as well. And it's really just working with communities and services around trying to build a better response to substance use and mental health issues. And the other thing that's coming out, no matter what piece of research is done, so we did a big piece of research in 2019 in Fingers and Cabra, and, and any of the researchers sharing this now, is that unless we're trauma-informed in our approach, then we run the risk of perpetuating the problems that already exist. Because it's a small group of people and um, we were only talking about this last week, maybe 10% who the dual diagnosis is helpful. Helpful because it means they'll get access to a specialist service, which is a medical service. But 90% of people need a much broader needs-based service where the dual diagnosis might be divisive and might actually prevent them getting the services rather than helping getting the services. So there is a, there's a little place for it. Um, and, and, and for those that need that, that's great. Um, I'm kind of wandering a little bit now. Am I answering the question? No, you yeah, are, yeah, um, yeah. You just give us a little insight into some of the work that you've done. Um, and I, I suppose we'll go into that a little bit yeah. more in detail as we talk. But just for yourself, Trina, if you wanted to... Um, yeah, so I'm working with the Dublin North North East Recovery College as a community development worker, um, which I suppose gives me the opportunity to, to do what I love best, which is working with the communities, building relationships, engaging with communities, um, finding out what the kind of needs are and how we can best support them. So I think what I do kind of complements the bit that Liam does around the dual diagnosis awareness and kind of raising that awareness, but I go out to the communities and engage with the different services. We obviously, we always try to include people with lived experience as well. So it's trying to, to make sure that we're getting all those voices heard. So through services, I will try and meet with local people and um, meet with as many people as I possibly can so that I can find out from them what they feel um, they would need most in order to be able to kind of respond to the issues that their area is experiencing. And like Liam said, so far we've worked in Finglas Cabra. We're doing the northeast inner city. So as you can imagine, the issues are quite similar. There's a lot of poverty in the area. There's high levels of, of addiction, antisocial behaviour, stuff like that. So kind of everyone in the community has a bit of an interest in it. So it's trying to figure out where everyone is coming from and, and I suppose bringing that trauma-informed piece into the community as well. So just on a basic level, making people aware that the community is quite traumatised in itself and if we can tackle that um, at a foundation level, the rest will follow. So whatever the, the symptoms of that trauma become, addiction, whatever it might be, mental health, that we can kind of come at it from a trauma-informed approach. Um, so yeah, so that's a bit about what I do with the Recovery College. Yeah, thanks very much, Trina. And I suppose just as you finished there about a trauma-informed community and how that might look or how that might help the community in itself, we as a community here in Ballymun, which I know you're involved with, Liam, we are working towards supporting the community as a trauma-informed community. And I know you're involved in that. If you want to talk a little bit about that or how that my shape or look. Yeah, I mean, both of us, I mean, the trainers working on the core group and, and M who couldn't be with us today. Um, I, I, th I think what's becoming clear, and I know it's kind of in one way becoming popular, um, but what's becoming clear is that any of the major issues that we're experiencing, so take Ballymun, for example, you've been working on this for three years now, kind of building up the, the trauma-informed community, um, where there's any major issues 
you only have to look beneath the surface and it's about trauma. It's not saying Ballymun is traumatised and everywhere else isn't. Everywhere is. We've the same in North East Inner City. But, so from my point of view here, if, if this is going to succeed and it looks like it is in Ballymun, the idea of a trauma-informed community means that wherever I go in Ballymun, the language used in relation to me, the way people will treat me, the way people might understand what's going on for me will be kind of similar across the board. So if I have significant problems, uh, mental health, um, substance use, at the moment, wherever I go, I'll be stigmatised, particularly if it's kind of obvious I'm using substance or if it's obvious I've got mental health problems. Um, If I go into, I don't know, I won't name a particular office, but a lot of offices, public spaces, not necessarily services, the response I get across the counter might trigger me. The response I get across the counter might make me feel shit. Uh, and I already feel shit. And I might maybe. So the idea of Ballymun being trauma informed, it means if I go into the interview office, if I go into the police station, if I go into uh, a substance use service, a homeless service, that everybody kind of understands. And it's not everybody is saying you're traumatised. It's everybody understands that there's trauma lying kind of at the back somewhere of most people who have these kind of complex needs. And then the other thing is what we've done in a lot of communities, and I I don't think Ballymun's any different, there's been a lot of changes in Ballymun over the last few decades, is that we hold trauma in the community. So we hold a kind of a systemic trauma in the community. So we went through stuff in the 70s, there was community generated, then there was kind of the regeneration. There's a whole pattern of kind of trauma within the, the community of, of Ballymun and other communities as well. It, 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 it's, it's, not, it's not specific to here. And if we begin to understand as a community um, that we're normalising stuff um, and that we don't have to, that if we all respond as a community as well, some of the stuff we've normalising, that's not good for health, that's not good for well-being, that we can begin to move that aside. And then, you know, this notion that we've lost in Ireland, uh, I am because we are, I don't know if you heard that, it's kind of a, the idea, there's no such thing as me, it's all about we. And the idea of a trauma-informed community is it's a we response. It's not an I, I, I response. And I think, I think it's great that, Ballymun is, is doing this. I know it's a slow process and people kind of can get a bit kind of fed up, but it is a slow process. It's a whole community approach. Um, so I'm delighted and we're delighted that the recovery college to be have a small part to play in it as well. Yeah, and we uh, appreciate you too. So um, because it's a, it's a real need for our community and there's a lot of different services and agencies working on that at the moment. Yeah. So yeah, uh, long may it continue. And for yourself, Trina, um, you've been working on it too. And how have you found it? Uh, in the context of the Ballymun community? Yeah, well, I think, like, what, what what's great is that you do already have a core group of services that are already engaged in this and have done a bit of research and consultation with the community over the last few years. So, um, as much as I'm not coming on board as a community development worker, I'm just kind of a little bit involved because the Recovery College is involved, it's, it's good to see that the groundwork is already there. So, the agencies and the services that are already engaged with the community are invested in this and they're going to be part of the drive so they'll drive it forward because I think that's what you do need as much as you know there will be loads of people in the community that will probably be really interested in this like there is kind of people are getting a little bit more aware of trauma and how you know it's a big part to play in in people's lives Um, I think what Ballymun has going for is they do still have a strong community um, and a community presence there so I think 
that will work in its favour that there's a group there that's willing to push this forward and hopefully continue continue it on and make it kind of a sustainable movement not just that the recovery college comes in and delivers some workshops that they can drive it forward and and keep needs analyzing what what's what's needed in the community you know and um but I, I can already say that there's there's a bit of momentum building there and hopefully they can they can use that and yeah and I, I think i think it is you've said three years we're working on it it is yeah. a, it is a process isn't yeah. it that those kind of change over time it's not like a quick fix well like. when you try to make a quick fix it'd be one of those kind of things that we pretend we did it as opposed to really did it Trina was talking I was just reminded like your perfect example as far as I can see is your the recovery stories the book that was launched there recently I was reading through those and, and three quarters of those specifically said trauma lies at the basis more than three quarters said there's mental health and substance use involved. So this was the narrative of people who's recovering in Ballymun. Um, so they're actually saying, this is the story, trauma lies at the base of substance use and mental health. And it was the same for volume one, I think, as well. Now, I didn't read the full of volume one, but, like, the story is being told and... Like it's so clear when you read it, you know, you can do all these kind of pieces of research, but when you hear actually 22 stories that saying trauma is at the basis of it, and in order to be able to recognize that and get through that and kind of recover, I need to recognize mental health and substance use. So I, I'm, I've kind of gone off the topic, I think, in a way, other than trauma is at the bottom of it, but it just Trina kind of stimulated what she was saying about it. And I was thinking, actually, you know, we don't have to listen to any of the research that's above there, we've actually got it here, actually, in this building. You know, we heard the story. We were actually at ago. the Citizens Assembly. Um, it was a workshop for the Citizens Assembly on Friday. And I actually said that the recovery stories should be researched and, and, and looked and identified as a way of hearing the voices of people yeah. in recovery and what is needed yeah. to recover because the Citizens Assembly is about what's next for, um, obviously, for the, the drug situation. And yeah. I suppose leading into that, do you have any... Um, opinion on that either of you around the citizens assembly or how that has been or how it will be <laughs> yeah I mean you're probably more opinionated than me on this but I, I, I know I had to respond to the to the kind of question on it um, <laughs> yeah so I, I would be quite interested in in the policy side of things so I, I like I love working on the ground with people but I'm also always thinking of the bigger picture and what are the policies that are stopping us from from moving forward with the responses that we need and I would see the drugs policy as being one of them um so yeah yeah so we all the work that's being done on the ground all the work the community services are doing we're meeting the community day in day out and we know the services are there and the work is phenomenal um even with these policies that you know put a lot of red tape in the way of people doing what they should be able to do or resource and services, whatever it might be. So I think, I mean, the Citizens Assembly are a great opportunity to, you know, have that conversation and discussion with normal, like people from all sorts of backgrounds, because it's 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 basically like a lottery of the whole country that, you know, they're the people who are going to be sitting in that room. So I think we need to make sure we're doing the if it's, I don't know, whether it's podcasts, whatever it is, we're just making um, making people aware that how important it is that we do take into account what's in policy um, and how that does affect the work that's being done. So I, I know services will always continue to do what they do, 
but there are policies that stop them from doing the extra bit that would really probably make the difference in certain communities. And I, I think on Friday, there was a lot of agencies and services that were involved in that workshop, but I think one team that came from it was that we need the voice of the community as well to be in yeah. it big time. Um, I suppose talking about policy there, and Liam, the, the, the report you've done on mental health and um, addiction services in Ireland um, and management of geo diagnosis in 2004, some of the key findings was around the policy of services and stuff yeah, like that. And yeah. um, it was very interesting reading that. I was just wondering if you would like to elaborate on that around the yeah, policy of that. Yeah. D- definitely. Um, could I go back to the Assembly just for one oh, second? Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, like, obviously, Trina's more than you did. No, 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 I wasn't, I wasn't kind of, kind of sky of that question. Right. Um, but um, my, my concern, I, like a, it's necessary, absolutely necessary. But there seems to be, we asked this question the other day in the Rochester as well. I hope it doesn't get kind of get carried away with the decriminalisation piece because if it gets carried away with the decriminalisation piece, then a lot of the rest of the stuff just gets kind of it's just it's just a smoke screen for a lot of ignoring and not actually responding to to the crisis. Um, so for me as many people from the community getting into the system assembly as possible who are coming from a perspective of the overall response to substance use not the criminalization or not because that obviously is a major thing um but for people you know as you know working in kind of substance use service particularly harm reduction actually you know we're working within the illegality anyway of of what people are doing and and we're having to do that in a harm reduction way so for us it's more about enabling more and more and more of people to not feel ashamed or not feel criminalized by coming forward but it's much broader and i felt some of the questions the other day they were just focused on the criminal bit where, where i think we need to move beyond that but yeah well there i think they did say that, you know, they would like to see dual diagnosis taking a place because I think once you put dual diagnosis into it, it opens up the conversation that, um, you know, people are, are using substances to self-medicate trauma. And then that opens it up to a wider, a, a wider conversation as well. So I think there there was definitely a bit of a, you know, they were looking for us maybe to, to go in and speak again at the, yeah. the Citizens Assembly. And that would be something that if it's not us, but it's definitely needs to be a conversation around the, the the, you know, how mental health and substance use are 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 intertwined in so many different ways. So I think, yes, there was a lot of questions around the decriminalisation, but I think that was a good opportunity last week, speaking in the Oireachtas, for us to open up the conversation to the, the links between the mental health and the substance yeah. use. Yeah. Oh, I understand what you're saying, uh, Liam, but yeah, that's a, a valid point in yeah. terms of the decrim situation because when I went in, I was kind of all for decriminalisation, but after leaving the um, the workshop the other day, I was more for leaning towards legal control, do you know what I mean? Right. Because okay. the, de- the decrim situation only serves the user, but there's so much more strands to yeah, it that yeah. need to be looked at in yeah. terms of people who are groomed into it into dealing and stuff like that and you know um, there's just so many layers to it that need to be looked at that legal control might have a, a more um, I suppose bigger approach to try right. to support mm. all yeah. strands of it you mm. know um, I don't know what you think about that um, yeah I, I suppose 
It's terrible, but I, 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 whatever makes it easier for people to be able to kind of step out into life and say, this is what I do, um, all of those things, you know, there's a whole industry around, we're going to go sidetracking up, end up sidetracking a bit, now there's a whole industry around, like you said, about the grooming, about the preparation, about the why should I do, uh, why should I get an education, why should I get a kind of a trade oh, when, when, when you know when at 12 years of old age I can actually have my Rolex watch if I actually play my cards right there's that whole kind of approach there's the hero worshipping of drug dealers in the community so I do think decriminalisation or legal control whichever will will begin to unpack that that, uh, that it's not such a kind of a uh, what would I say not such a luxurious kind of um, flamboyant lifestyle anymore um, but my, my interest kind of personally isn't there it's in the how much we can ease up the ability for people to step forward and to uh, for us to be able to respond in a harm reduced way without actually further stigma so if you for example whatever you want to take if you take the, the kind of needle exchange down Merchant's Quay where people are still trying to keep the vans off the street you know if, if that just becomes nothing no stigma that just becomes the norm recognising when somebody's using mental health services that they're using they might be doing something illegal but they're using because they have to use and that we need to be able to be freed or to be able to engage in that that's, that's what I'm kind of interested in more than the legal framework or the decriminalisation um, now I know it's intertwined but I know in other jurisdictions even before they legalised it within the health services there was a formal ability for practitioners to be able to work within the illegal kind of arena of people using, you know, even on a unit, you know, without suddenly having to ring the police because they were using, you were able to engage and, and kind of create safe spaces, all right. So I'd like to see us going that direction. And that's my kind of yeah. kind of take on it. But I, I suppose, sorry, I kind of got sidetracked a bit. But no, going back fine, to that report fine. you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was actually going there. So it's oh, good that okay. you recognise that. <laughs> <laughs> New host for the show. <laughs> no, but I, I suppose... I mean, it's an old report, uh, but often old the but original report. Yeah, to, and, and and what's fascinating is what's changed since then. I think so. So some of the recommendations. Well, one of them interesting was unless we join up government departments and policies, we will never be able to get services to respond. Um, so one of the things that's happened. I can't do the maths, but 2020, we had a new policy that for the first time in history, we joined, well, for the first time since 1984, because before that it was joined, we joined policy uh, to respond to mental health and substance use. So that was, but it took that long to do it. So even the policy that came out in 2006 after that report didn't do it. It just tried to create a couple of medical teams, to, well, 14 medical teams to deal with dual diagnosis, which never happened, thank God, um, because it wouldn't have worked. But um, uh, one of the other things they said was, so joined up policy, we've got that, uh, finally. They also talked about um, the requirement to have we're calling it case management now, but in 2004 it was using the evidence which was dual diagnosis coordination, which means you've got somebody who's actually the linchpin between any kind of service that somebody might want or need. Um, and that was in 2002 best practice. The same principles apply today and probably to fit that in the Irish context there's a big thing in case management, which is the same principle. Um, and we have examples of good case management, for example, Chrysalis. You, you probably know Chris. I think you do it in Star as well, do you? Um, um, similar. Not, so, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but... We recommended that, and if that came out in 2000, from 2004, we actually wouldn't be having this conversation now. 
uh, we would have kind of the idea that substance use and mental health is just something that somebody brings to the table. And whether they go to uh, STAR, whether they go to Christus, whether they go to the mental health services, they have case management, a dual diagnosis coordinator who actually works with the caseload of people who have this kind of relationship between both and links them into the relevant services. They didn't do that. It's in the new model of care, finally. 20 odd, nearly 20 years later again. So um, if that gets pushed forward, a new model of care, that's great. So that was interesting. Um, so you were looking for not, you were looking for a small amount of integrate uh, a specialist service, but mainly you were looking for the integration through the, through the dual diagnosis coordination or case management, as we're calling it now. Yeah. Um, some other interesting stuff was the inability for organizations to speak to each other. Um, you know, this kind of delay and referral process and that kind of process. And and what we'd said was that where there was an informal network, that it worked. The response to dual diagnosis worked in the community. Where that wasn't there, because formal structures were just cutting it and just wouldn't let you talk to each mm-hmm. other, then dual diagnosis wasn't responded to well. And it's interesting, the, in the latter years, when communities are now jumping up and responding to dual diagnosis, no matter what piece of work is done, they're all saying... We need this network because when we've got this network, stuff happens. Um, you know, uh, like 2019, the research Cabra this said the exact same thing as it was said in 2004. Give us this network. Uh, it, we can work together while we wait for the government to get their act together and we wait for the services to get their act together to finally realise that we need to all talk to each other. So I, I think some of those things are finally coming to fruition. But the interesting thing is they're only coming to fruition not necessarily because of the government. Now, the policy helps, mm. but because services on the ground, and mainly community service has to be said, not the statutory addiction or mental health services, they will roll in behind policy now, have just stood up and said, listen, this is ridiculous. We've got to actually respond to it because it's most of our clients, they'd say anecdotally, mm. have got this kind of interaction stuff. So there, there were some of the interesting things for me and it was interesting that the government never responded to it. I think the government thought, oh my God, if we actually bring this in, we're going to have a, te- we're going to have a whole avalanche of new people. We're mm. not going to have an avalanche of new people. We're already dealing with people with dual diagnosis. Yeah. We're just going to deal with them properly and we're going to deal with their needs as opposed to just moving from pillar to post. So I, I don't think the government quite got that. They thought they were worried about getting a new group of clients. It's not. It's the same. Same people we're seeing every day. You know that. You, you know that's what. Yeah, saying. and I suppose just after reading that report, like I just like say thank you for raising that awareness, like because I suppose for years I've grew up with a lad who who I grew up with who developed a mental health problem through his drug use. Right. And he was same thing. Drug service wouldn't take him on because the criteria to fit that didn't fit. Yeah. And then mental health yeah. health services were always saying, look, you need to deal with your drug problem. So he was going from pillar to post. Yeah. Now, he's been like that for a long time now, you know, and I've tried to refer him into many different services yeah. that haven't worked for him. Um, unfortunately, he's in prison now at the moment. But I mean, if people had a st- stood up and listened to this in 2004, that might be different for him. And that's the reality. And other people, yeah. you know. So, yeah, I suppose... Those were my three questions around yeah, them findings yeah, and you, no, you spoke great, about yeah. them, which is great, how it's progressed and then obviously how the services were uh, inadequate in yeah. terms of being able to deal with that and stuff. So yeah. have you got anything you'd like to add on that, Trina? Um, um, I think just on that point, like I, I've even just over the last couple of weeks, because I'm trying to gather um, kind of a, a, a list of resources and services in the North Eastern City in particular um, that are... 
would kind of be on the front line working with people with mental health and substance use issues. And I'm going through some of the referral forms and the application forms. And I'm, I'm, because, you know, I'm thinking of this trauma-informed stuff as well. And I'm, I'm looking at them through that lens. And I'm, I'm thinking, God, even just to fill out an application or, you know, to, to go and try and get a referral, you have to jump through so many hoops and even the ser- some of the questions. And these are services that are doing brilliant work for the community. But it's just... To me, you know, even just looking at their forms and the, the, the types of questions, I'm thinking, you know, God, it's a lot that people have to jump through and about, you know, how long they've been drug free or detox and when the last time, you know, and it's just, it's, I think as well-meaning as services are, it's that policy piece that unless it's implemented, like like that policy that Liam was talking about in 2020 says that nobody should be able, nobody can, can close the door in someone's face. They have to be treated no matter where they go. But when you're looking at these referral forms and if I was somebody who was looking for a service, that would automatically be a door closed in my face because I'd be thinking, well, I don't meet the criteria, you know. So it's about implementing that policy and how services are supported to do that as well, you know. So hopefully a bit of the work that we're doing, trying to build capacity within services will help um, them to be able to kind of maybe... The referral, change the referral forms, at least right something wrongs. similar, you know. Right something wrongs, yeah. yeah, yeah, change the questions that get asked, you know. Yeah. It's uh, interesting what you're saying because, like, the lad that I spoke about just there, like, when I, anytime I see him, my initial reaction is I want to support him and I want to try, you know, give him some help. But he has lost hope yeah. because of how services have failed him. Yeah. And that's yeah. the reality. Right. And he will say to me, what's the point? And if you're at that stage, what's yeah. the point? Yeah. Where can you go from there? Without often, yeah. You, know, yeah. you have to be a hope carrier, really, don't you? Yeah. But then you have to be a hope carrier. Yeah. You have to also have hope. Yeah. 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 So that has been a tricky situation yeah. for me in terms of that. And I suppose why I find this so interesting. Um, One of the things um, we decided about three years ago, and it was partly to do with, it was just a huge community kind of upsurge um, and, and, and I suppose I've been involved across the country in different dual diagnosis services development was that the recovery college itself kind of decided to almost, it wasn't rebranding, it was actually to acknowledge that this is, and, and even if it's whatever little bit of influence we can have, that we are a mental health substance use combined kind of um, uh, college now. And, and, and it is having some influence because we have a European f- funded project. So it's not just, you know, we've projects right across North Dublin. The Connect Create Participate is all about working with people with substance use, mental health issues who design their own empowerment programs for the community. Uh, which means that it's completely the community of people who who are experiencing these issues, designing what they need, and then us making sure that gets delivered, including by them. Um, you know, you do a train to trainer, so you'd identify what you need, uh, and then they would deliver that in the community. So we're hoping that the more the, co- the, the community is kind of being driven and the wider community, and I know we're, we're not just North Dublin, we're wider, we're Mead and Loud and beyond that as well, but we also amalgamated with like the Recovery Academy with other partners, uh, almost like to create kind of a movement. Uh, a part of that is to put pressure on statutory services and fairness, because statutory services, maybe rightly so, well, not rightly so, but statutory services will respond when they get the, when they get the nod to respond, um, even though we've got policy, even though we've got a dual diagnosis model, statutory services tend to be slower to respond in the community because the community have no choice but to take what 
for this landing on him. So we're just hoping our own little way to have a bit of influence on that. But we purposely retaught ourselves uh, in terms of how we looked and, and, and wanted to kind of make the statement where mental health and substance use. Um, I, I, yeah, and I just wanted to mention that, that Connect Create Participate course because that's where the community actually uh, decides what they want and then does it. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Um, so yeah, I hope somebody listening to that can hear that about the Recovery Academy and if they need any supports around that. With Recovery um, College, sorry. I know we're merged with Recovery Academy. Recovery <laughs> College and Recovery <laughs> Academy. Yeah, um, yeah. You might need a link yeah. up for that. Um, I suppose one question that we always ask, and this is going to be interesting, we ask what does recovery mean to you individually? And mm. um, We ask that to all our guests, and I suppose we get so many different op um, opinions on it and how it, what it means to them because it's so diverse, but we'd love to hear your opinion on it. Well, mine, mine isn't medical, for starters, because there's a medical approach to recovery, which, which is a kind of a contradiction, you know, uh, because the medical approach normally prevents recovery. Um, mine is the ability for somebody to be able to heal from trauma, um, to be able to recover their lives, per se. It's not about recovery from, you know, substance being the main, you know, substance control in their life or mental health issues control in their life. It's to actually take back their life because they may still, they may still have mental health issues. That doesn't mean they're not recovered. So for me, recovery is kind of an onward kind of story or better story to my life if I've had adverse kind of stuff previously. That so. It's, I, the words I often use is recovering my life, um, but it certainly isn't the absence of something, either the absence of substance or the absence of mental illness. You know, that might be part of my life for the rest of my life, but if it no longer controls my life, then I'm in recovery. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, once you move away from the medical into a kind of a much more life-orientated, healing-orientated space, then, you know, there's always the possibility for healing. Going back to your point about hope, there's very little hope with a medical model, uh, but with a healing model uh, and a life model, there's a lot more hope and a lot more possibilities. So that's my long-winded answer to your question. Thanks very much. Um, <laughs> and for yourself, Trina. Yeah, I think mine will be a bit shorter now. So when <laughs> I think of recovery, I think of a journey, but I think at the core of it, it's it's finding like contentment in yourself and finding what makes you happy, um, whether that be education giving back just simply living your life just without you know torment and just being kind of content and finding joy in the small things i think that would be what recovery means to me um it's it's a it's a journey and it's it's ups and downs but it's being able to find that that bit of peace at the end of the day um without the use of something else you know um yeah that was longer than mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose, I mean, we, we've discussed our, our topic, so, I mean, if there's anything else that you feel that you might want to talk about in terms before we do um, leave, feel free. This is your opportunity. Yeah, no, I mean... <laughs> this is your Citizens Assembly now. <laughs> citizens assembly. No, I mean, this is, this is... This podcast, I think, is brilliant. You were saying earlier on about, you know, people don't necessarily go to meetings. They don't necessarily go to, you know... Uh, into an education thing, they don't necessarily so to have the opportunity to just link into this, I think it I think it's brilliant. So I just want to say that in terms of the benefit and and so many more people now use podcasts to one understand and to two be able to be informed. So hats off really I suppose. And I suppose to get a plug for um 
recoverycollege.ie. Um, it is, you know, the empowering college that's there for the whole Dublin North community. Uh, and, and if people went onto our website, which is literally that www.recoverycollege.ie, um, and just engage, you know, we, we don't have any agenda other, other than to engage with the community. <coughs> Um, so yeah, that's the plug for me. I don't know. You've probably better plugging and stuff. our social media. Oh, Shout out as well. Um, yeah, no. Again, just repeating what Liam said. Shout out to you for doing the podcast because I think podcasts are just these days. That's where people get their information, and I think it's just real conversations. Like the academic stuff is great, and I know you probably read the report. It's, it's brilliant, but just these simple conversations, uh, you know, that you can just tune in and tune out of throughout your day. I think are really helpful for people and I think people find a lot of solace in listening to other people talking about their experiences as well um, as far as the recovery college goes yeah I suppose we should give the dates of maybe the the workshops that we're doing in Ballymun yeah. um, just if people are interested there is an introduction session next Thursday the 6th of April that's from 6 to 8 and it'll be in the Axis mm. and then following on from that there will be two Full two-day workshops. And just to say, sorry, that introduction is for everybody in the community. Anybody who's interested in kind of the notion of trauma and how it impacts on, on the community. So anybody. Yeah, not just, uh, that's understanding right. kind of the interactions between. So like Liam was saying earlier on, like it could be the intro office, the post office, the guard station, just our everyday interactions with each other, how they impact. So it, it like you said, is for everybody. Um, and then the workshops. So there are two two-days. The first one being on the second of the third. Um or sorry, the first one is on the 26th and the 27th of April, and then the second will be the 2nd and the 3rd of May. The May one is here in the Axis. I can't remember where the first one is, but it's it's, it's here, it's centrally it's here. all in Ballymun, well. yeah. 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 Um, so. And that's geared probably, well, I think anybody can go on it, but I mean, a lot of people who'd be interested in are people coming from services perspective. Yeah. So that's about how to be trauma-informed and how we engage with people generally yeah. in the community. Yeah, I um, that's great. Um, and if there is any listeners out there that do want to come along to them, any of them information sessions or workshops, feel free. Get in touch with us, um, Ballymun Communications or Easy Street Star. And I'd just like to thank the two of you for coming in and thank you for your continued work in this field and supporting people in recovery. Um, it's really important. Um, so thanks very much on behalf of myself and the podcast and the Ballymun Does Recovery podcast. Um, I won't take up too much more of our time, but thank Cheers, you so Jimmy. much. Thank you. Cheers, Jimmy. Thank you. Okay, so welcome everybody back to the Ballymundos Recovery Podcast. Yesterday we talked with Liam McGowan and Trina Bourne. We talked about um, mental health and substance use um, and how they overlap each other. We had great conversations around that and we're going to continue that conversation today with two guests, Angie Birch from Easy Street Star and Sean Kinsley, who is a member of the Ballymun community and he also has his own business, Skills Life's Balance. He's going to discuss that. So I'll just open the um, table to both of you and let you just have a little introduction of yourself and what type of work you do. So if you want to go for Shani and <coughs> So my name is Shani Kinsley, originally from Ballymun and uh, love this community, love um, being part of it. And it's my business name, people always get it wrong. It's SK Life Balance. Right. Um, 
but skills balance makes sense too. Because <laughs> uh, I'm telling everyone skills life balance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's it's SK life balance. All right, right. And um, SK Sean Kinsley. Sean Kinsley life balance. There we balance. go. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. The, the the idea is in the name, I suppose. You know, yeah. it's like I never had balance in my life. Um, you know, I didn't know what that was. Obviously, it was an addiction and had all sorts of imbalances in my life with relationships, family, everything. So now what I try and do is I try and find balance in my own life. And in doing that, I try and show that to people that we're going through the same process as we went through in relation to our mental health. Um, and I, I, I'm a f real advocate for mental health now as opposed to addiction. Because for all of my life, everything that I was going through was related to me being a junkie <laughs> or a drug addict or whatever you want to call it. And what I've, what I've learned over time and education and in different ways is that a lot of my issues were mental health. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so um, that's me. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Appreciate that. And Angie, yourself. Uh, hey, thanks, Jimmy. Um, thanks, Shani. That was nice uh, hearing that. Um, I'm my name's Angie. I am the supervisor of GG Street Team and the Star Project. Um, we're a detached outreach team. Um, that most of our work is done on the street, and we work with young people aged ten to twenty eight who have uh, who are impacted by substance in many forms. Um, and their families and who m may be seeking support for that. So in a nutshell, very small nutshell, that's uh, the work that we do. Yeah, no, that's great, Angie. We'll probably go into that more in detail uh, in a bit. I suppose um, one of the conversations we had with the other two guests was around Ballymun becoming a trauma-informed community. And I suppose over the last few podcasts, this has came up a lot. And... I know you're part of the original steering group, Angie, and the the process. Could you just um, give us a little bit of historical context on that and how you, how that came about? <clears throat> yeah, so I suppose pre-COVID, um, and it originated through the Ballymore Network for assisting young people and children, um, which the drugs, the Ballymore Local Drugs Task Force uh, steer. Um, so it originated from that through the type of conversations that were happening and the realisations um, that around trauma and its impact in this community. Um, a small group of us then, myself, Angela King, Paul Madden and Katie McAndrews from the SAR Project. Angela was from the Drugs Task Force and Paul is Tusla. Um, and myself, so the, we were given the, the go-ahead to meet as a small subgroup to discuss trauma and its impact um, and what we were going to do about it, some response to, to it. Um, and especially, so that was the beginning, but uh, then after COVID-19, obviously trauma became a lot more visible and we learned a lot more about people and people seemed to open up and show you who and what they were suffering. Um, so we thought, we we came back together after COVID-19 and thought, look, we really need to do something here. Like, so, um, and we felt that to be trauma-informed was how you greet people, how you meet people. It, just, it, it wasn't all academic or it wasn't all sitting, getting deep psychoanalysis and walking with your, you know, embedded deep traumas. It was around a way of being <coughs> and a way of just 
basic human sort of awareness of each other. Interaction. Yeah, yeah. And, and just awareness of yourself and how you are with others and mm. treat others as you would like to be treated. So that's sort of the underlying principle of it. Um, so we came together and we decided that we would run a number of online events because we were still uh, walking online with restrictions. Um, so Peter Dorman and Jackie, uh, two facilitators, we got a few Bob and they came along and supported us with the process. So we set up the two online events um, where we had over like 80 individuals in attendance, I think, a spread of agencies uh, across the community, teachers, DCC, youth agencies, drugs agencies, at like schools, like nearly every agency that's you know, you could think of in the area there was <coughs> representation from. And we had the two sessions and um, we spoke about Katie McAndrews done a presentation on trauma, an excellent presentation on trauma. And then I just won a piece on, on sim simply, you know, the simple elements of trauma. Um, and from that then, the hope from that, was that we would get people who were there and agencies to agree to become part of subgroups and a steering group um, that was going to bring this process forward. So we got great commitment that day. The, the events went really well. People signed up for it across the agencies, a great spread of agencies um, on the steering group. And Peter and Jackie brought us through that process as well, and they documented it. And then they had some findings and uh, direction for us. And it was to break into smaller subgroups. Um, um, so to have the main steering group and then to have an education uh, group, a PR group, um, a research group and a funding group. So people committed then from the four steering committee. They went into their interest groups and, and we started from from there so that and that's going so it's all going on as I think Shani mentioned earlier maybe before the podcast around the five year phenomenon thing now at the same time we've since realised that loads of communities you know that are similar to Ballymun were going through the same process um, or similar processes um, and we hopefully will come together through the movement now I, I name it as a movement because I think it is a, a movement Um. So yeah, that's where we're at, and that the one of the first events that's coming up uh, from that. There was a number of meetings, and a lot of work has happened, and then one of the first events because the community is really important. This is not about services being trauma informed. It's about Ballymun being a trauma informed community. For me, anyway, that's what it's really about, and I don't want to lose sight of that. That I, I think it's about the person in the shop, the person in the post office, the person in you know, where you, on the bus, being how you agree and meet people can make mm. a difference yeah. in literally somebody's life. Yeah. I, for me, I suppose, it was a, mo a time in my life when, like, Shani, uh, I had a, a past, and I always remember a, a guy saying to me years later, and it always stuck with me, he said to me, that day you opened that door to me and asked me, how was I, how was things? He said, I was on my way to kill myself that day. And I didn't do that because you showed me that mm -hmm. somebody cared. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. And that's all That's all it was like. Yeah. Um, now, 
look, sadly, he's inside, but he, he didn't, you know. But the recognition yeah, was there of he, that, that meant, that was a, a moment it, in yeah, his life that really, you know, helped him change his thinking. And that's what Trauma Informed is about, isn't it? It's about changing how we interact with people and how we speak to them. And hopefully that will then, um, I suppose, inspire them to change whatever's going on for them inside. Yeah, definitely. And I, I, the hope is that, you know, n many people from the community attend the event that Liam um, would have spoke about and that's being organised. So lo lots of people and agencies are involved now. And because of our work, we're so busy. I've s stepped back a little bit from it, which is OK, because other champions are coming along. And that was always the point of it, like to get it driven um, and people to take hold of it. And people really are embracing it now. We have a logo now. Uh, that Roshan from the Drugs Task Force designed as well. Um, and it's a really nice logo and the event will happen and we'll hopefully get community buy-in and we're trying to pitch the sessions at community level um, mm. for, for people to really understand. And that's, you know, I think mm. that it has great potential. That's uh, great, Ange, about the historical, um, how, it, how it began and the context of where it's at and where it's going. I suppose, Shani, you listening, um, I'm sure you have your own experience with trauma in, in your work both and in your in your personal life if you'd like to talk about it and yeah. your education. Yeah, absolutely. I think I have always been interested in trauma um, and always working on it in throughout me like recovery journey long before that. I was seeing psychologists and counsellors and, you know, different people at different stages and I suppose for me, trauma was always something that impacted me. And like like Angie talked about, you know, was people met me with negativity around that. P you know, the the different organisations that I was involved in, and I would have been very hurt, and I would I would um I would lash out or I would abuse people or I would do certain things as a way of trying to manage that. And um, people never ask me that I want to have a cup of tea and how is it feeling and, you know, like, are you okay? You know, so for me, I've learned through, through my own process of trying to heal, I suppose, um, heal all the, the stuff that went on in my life for a long time, long before I took any substance. Um, and I've, I've since, for a long time, I wasn't open to believing in other areas of recovery or, you know, trauma or there's other, there's other stuff that's happening to impact people. I, I, I just, I, I don't know why, but I just never was open to, to that space. And then since, obviously, I, I had my own breakdown, like I broke up with my daughter's um, mother. Um, I lost a job after six years. Um, I was I just realised that I was miserable in my life. I'd no joy, I'd no peace, I'd loads of money, I had a lovely car, I had all these people telling me I was great and I was suicidal, like I didn't want to live. Yeah. Um, you know, so at that stage in my life I had to make a decision for me that, you know, that the, there was a life worth living for me and I when I left the relationship and I left the job I, it was like one of the officers walked down a one of Mount Joy and out my cell door and says to me, there you go, Shani, you're free. And from that day on, I started living and 
for me, mental health is a huge, huge thing. And I think mental health and trauma are both related. I think both of them are, like, they coincide, if, especially on a community level. And I've noticed that since I came back into Ballymun and started to, to walk in Ballymun in relation to helping out and engaging with the fitness festival, engaging with, like, um, the Easy Street team and, like, just meeting you again and just connecting in with people that we've learned that, for me, it's about meeting people and just having a cup of tea and shooting the breeze and chatting to them and, and seeing them for, seeing them at a human level as opposed yeah. to trying to figure out how to put interventions in place and all this like academic stuff and research and all. I just, I just meet people where they are and I, I hear them, I listen to them, have a bit of fun with them. And I think for me, that's the best way that we can impact people. Cause that was the way that people impacted me when I was, when I was unwell in, with me mental health. Mm. So as well, Angie, just in terms of the, you talked a good bit about the historical um, and the context of the trauma-informed community of Ballymun and how that got off the ground. What, what about for the future development and the aspirations? Um, I, I know we've talked and we've discussed a little bit about that, but I mean, for your own personal view yeah, so of being involved in it. Yeah, so what uh, what I also probably should have mentioned is, which is key, is that um, in them discussions there was a recognition that uh, the trauma for in Ballymun wasn't just on an individual, impacted on an individual level, <coughs> that growing up here there was many traumatic events and people witnessed many traumatic events and were impacted by many traumatic events. And that's why... The vision is for Ballymun to become a trauma-informed community um, because it, there's a recognition that, you know, this community is carrying a lot of trauma mm. and it's alive and well every day. Yeah. And to, I think, to be able to speak about trauma and to take the stigma away from it and for people to be able to understand how they're feeling or some of how they're behaving is is trauma related by what they've seen or what they've been through um will is key in people's recovery you know mm. and people realizing that they're not to blame for for everything and you know forgiving and and moving on and living that better quality life that shawnee is talking about yeah. so that that's it's not just the individual impact mm. of the trauma it's the community in in its essence and that's why it's so important and the aspirations for it. It's so important that this is a piece for Ballymoan being a trauma-informed community, and that does not just mean the services in yeah. the area, it means the community and the people who live here, and they have to be and need to be part yeah. of it. And I think in the last podcast, Liam and Trina talked about the information session that's going to be coming forward, and the date was given, and um, people will hear that in the other session. Um, about the community coming and getting involved and letting us hear the community so the community has a voice in that trauma-informed um, rebuild or policy or um, principles that we're looking for. Um, Shani, you talked a little bit about uh, mental health there and I suppose <coughs> this is a, a, a substance podcast, um, a recovery podcast and it'd be interesting to get your definition we ask everybody this question on what recovery is um, and we'll ask Angie the same question as well because for everybody it's so 
it's so diverse, you know. People have different opinions on what recovery is, and it changes, you know. And it's just so interesting to hear everybody's definition or their own um, experience of what recovery means to them, you know. So, yeah, take it away, Shani. Yeah, that's, a, that's a really, uh, it's an interesting topic, and it's a, it's a question that you could, you know, it could, it could run on forever. Like, you know, it's, it's, and for me, my definition of recovery is love you know is love is me family me daughter me friends me quality of life the fact that we can travel we can go on holidays we can we can have a conversation here with yours without being like crippled with anxiety and with you know feeling like i shouldn't be here yeah so recovery for me is is really freedom it's, it's freedom yeah but yeah. it's it it's mad because at one level there's so many ideas of what people think recovery is and some people try and shove that into your face and try and tell you this is what it is. And for me, I believe that every individual should have the freedom to experience recovery for whatever they want it to be. Yeah. That it doesn't have to be put into a box and they have to be in that. They don't have the freedom to, you know, to experience anything else. Yeah. And, and I found for me for a long time, I was in a box in relation to recovery. Yeah. And it stopped me from experiencing life. And so now for me, recovery is about living. Yeah. It's about allowing people to have the freedom to do whatever it is they want to do, whether they want to travel or educate themselves or, you know, whatever the case may be. Yeah. We just yeah. believe in, we believe recovery to be freedom. Yeah. Thanks very much, John. Appreciate that. And Angie? We already got you a context on it before, but we're going to ask again. Yeah. I know, I'm glad you said it's different every day. <laughs> yeah, it when is, I but it changes at, for people all the time, you know. When I looked at it yesterday, I was thinking, I'll say, what well, I said it last time, <laughs> but yeah, no, it does, but I, I definitely think, yeah, it is about living and being free from whatever that was that was holding you back, like, you know, yeah. whatever that substance or what that might have been. Yeah. That was preventing you from from living life. Mm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it it has so many things. Yeah. For me, it's getting up in the day, and even though I don't want to get up and do whatever, it's getting up and and I still struggle all these years later. Like you know, yeah. um, we're having to push myself, but it's going against the grain. Like you yeah. know, you know, I think recovery is for everybody. Yeah. It not just people with addiction issues. Like, yeah, know? it's interesting because we were talking to Liam yesterday and we asked him the same question and we asked Trina the same question. And because they work um, in the mental health service, you know, recovery for them is mm. just about wellness, yeah. you know, kind of similar to what you were talking about. People, whatever they're having, they're finding their wellness and they're able to live their life and, um, and express that in whatever way or shape or form they want it. And I suppose this... this I love this question because you hear so many people and they have so many different ways because we're all different and we have all different life experiences and it changes. And one person told me uh, recently that, you know, at the beginning it was similar to you, Sean. It was about a program. It was about an intervention. Do you know what I mean? But then as he started to progress in his life, it was about me as an individual and how I see my recovery, you know. So I think that's really important what you said. And um, I suppose the next question is, and we're talking about substance and mental health and how they come hand in hand. Um, a little bit of your work, Sean, about how how you see that in your work and maybe in your life as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
so yeah, mental health for me is and substance use. You know, a lot of the the reasons why I went down the road of addiction in relation to using, um, for me was was due to mental health. Self medication. Yeah, self medicating, um, through anxiety, panic attacks, stuff that, and this is I'm talking about this in in the present moment, but I didn't know any of this back when I was growing up as a young kid. Of course. Yeah. So, I suppose. Hindsight is a great thing, but I spent all of my life crippled with anxiety, panic attacks, and different. I think I've I've learned recently that I've got ADHD as well. Mm. So so there's loads of different there's loads of different things happening in relation to mental health for me. What I've realised, yeah. and but Jordan, when I was in addiction, I had that, and then when I came into recovery, it got worse. Yeah. Yeah. So I was in recovery, should have been happy and free, and I realised that I was crippled with this feeling of not being able to cope yeah. and not understanding why I couldn't cope and not being able to reach out for help because I, I thought that I was in that recovery box and people were saying, like, you have to be happy. Yeah. And I was like, I couldn't breathe, yeah. I couldn't live, I couldn't experience life the way a normal person was. And what had to happen for me was is that I had a couple of different, like I talked about, situations happen to me in, in my life that brought me to a place where I needed to reach out for help, like professional help. Yeah. Not like going to somebody, like this was it, this was important for me. And what happened was, through the jigs and the reels, we ended up in an assessment with the CHQ for Dublin City Council because they thought I was lying about being sick. And he done like an assessment on me, the doctor, and he says, "Look, you're not fit to be in any job." He says, "You're suffering with terrible levels of anxiety and panic attacks, and you need to be on medication." And I was like, "I'm in recovery. I can't take medication." And he was like, "Nah, nah, nah. This is not drugs I'm talking about here. This is like medication, so as you can live a normal quality of life." Yeah. And I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around that. Yeah. I, I couldn't, I couldn't accept that. Yeah. And I went through that whole internal process of getting to a place. And luckily enough for me, I had my daughter come into my life, Harper Lily. So I needed to do this for myself, first of all, yeah. but secondly for her. Because yeah. I wasn't present for her. I couldn't give her what I needed to give her. And uh, thanks be to God, through, um, through that process of internal healing, I realised that I needed to do what the doctor told me to do. And I done that. We made that decision for me, mm. um, and you know, ever since making that decision and making lots of other decisions around that, and living, living my life now and experiencing pure love and joy with Harper Lily, we now have what's called balance, mm. but only because I I take medication for it. Yeah. So I take medication every day for anxiety and panic attacks because if we don't take that medication, we don't have a normal life like so people that are normal live their lives they get up they go to work they bring the kids to school they eat they sleep they don't they don't get massive levels of what what i'd get yeah and so the medication helps me to have balance in my life because i never had balance in my life since i was a young kid i was always up and down because of the lack of they they say it's it's um so there's a chemical imbalance in my brain 
So we don't produce the levels of serotonin that other people produce. Okay. Do you get me? Yeah. 100%. So the medication is, is in, you know, <coughs> is, is gives me balance. Yeah. It gives me that extra little bit of serotonin in yeah. my mind, which helps me to have balance where I can make decisions, I can eat regularly, I can sleep, and I have a normal life. Yeah? yeah? No, but I, ne I never knew that. It's interesting you say <laughs> that about serotonin because <coughs> for people who might know what serotonin in is, it's basically the hormone in your body that regulates your emotions. So it takes care of your emotions. So basically it looks after all your emotions. And if that serotonin isn't present, your emotions are all over the place. Exactly how you were trying to explain it there. Um, it was very interesting and I think our listeners will get a lot of what you're saying there, Shani, because we hear this a lot. Um, and in the recovery stories that we put up with um, the podcast, there's a lot of people who had similar stories, maybe not the same, but were suffering prior to their substance use, you know. Um, so it's really interesting, and I hope that the listeners are able to hear that, you know, that or people who are still are contemplating coming out of that, that this is not normal, we need to fix it, but it does happen. Yeah, and I, I, think, yeah. I think if... I think the key to it is awareness and like Angie was saying, like even with the trauma informed stuff and the mental health, if we can start discussing it and having open conversations about medication and about yeah. impacting and about like not everybody has to go on medication. I'm not saying that. I yeah. just mean that That was it, your balance. Yeah, but it yeah. doesn't feel like it can be talked about. Yeah. That's what I mean. It's like there's a stigma, stigma. attached yeah. to mental yeah. health in general forget about like substance use but just in general life for people mm. in this community especially I find like Angie said I think it's a cultural thing yeah. I think it impacts the whole community older people middle aged people youths younger people the mental health thing is massive and the problem is is that we don't feel like we can talk about it yeah. you know so yeah. that's that's what we feel and that's what we, I really value mm telling my experience about taking medication because yeah. I think it's important because yeah. other people don't have the confidence or the courage to speak about it. Yeah. So I think the more of us that can, <coughs> that are champions, like Angie said, that can actually step out and say, you know what, this is what I had to do. Mm. And I think that's how people relate. That's how we open the discussion and that's how we kind of move into making the community more informed. Mm. Another interesting topic that you said which we hear a lot, and we hear a lot of it in recovery as well, is that, you know, um, recovery happens when you take the substance away, like, do you know what I mean? But, like, for you, when you take the substance away, you were just talking about there, although you were in recovery, you didn't feel like you were recovering, do you understand? And it's like, there's still parts and elements that are there from prior um, substance use that need to be dealt with, that need to be spoke about, that need to be heard, that need to be healed. And that's the stuff that you're talking about. Absolutely. And I think people think they just take the drug away and that's it, but it's not. Mm. There's, a, there's okay. a journey in recovery and you have to be open and aware about it. So it's really interesting. Thanks very much, John. Um, I suppose because of last week, the Citizens' Assembly is something that was being on the um, horizon and we've been talking about it with our other two guests I suppose, what do you think, Angie, um, in relation to the three topics, um, decriminalisation, legalisation or legal control um, for the new drugs policy or reform around drugs policy? Um, <clears throat> what do I think about it? Um, well, we had, 
obviously the citizens assembly is coming up and there was a randomly selected 99 people and i think one allocated person who's going to oversee it um and they are going to discuss them three topics you said there uh we had a meeting last friday that the drugs the ballymore local drugs task force alcohol and drugs task force um organized and it was asking er, there was a number of guest speakers which were excellent um and gave a lot of food for talk um on the day um and then we had the discussions um about could we come to a consensus in from the Ballymun area around uh what we thought about it and yeah. that was f- there was fairly mixed results and um, it was very positive uh a lot of there was a lot of um favor for decriminalization and legalization and then there was a t- there was a term called legal control because so i think where we ended up was that you know a lot more information is needed it's a lot um there's a lot more to process than you think yeah. and it goes a lot deeper and you have to actually think about the people who um this is going to impact and i think you made the point jimmy at your table that it was about having the best having the best service and the best outcome for the person so they can have a better quality of life and if you keep that central to it and um, that will help guide it because if i'm being honest what i really think about it is that i don't know enough about it to mm. be able to to stick or put my colours to one mask on it. Yeah. Because, you know, it, it's very different. Yeah. It, I, I would be leaning towards, the personally, towards um, the legalisation because I, I, I think the decriminalisation doesn't necessarily have many benefits for some of the people we work with. Of course. So yeah. I don't think it's enough. Yeah. You know, um, and it doesn't recognise the trauma and all the stuff that has been spoke about here today um that's has has people in some of the situations that they're in mm. um so I, I don't think that that's enough um and wonder who that's actually aimed at and who that's for and who that's going to benefit but the legalization i think needs to be legally controlled yeah. at the same time because it could become very dangerous very quickly yeah. so i i think the, the session itself was really positive um and the jokes has for us done an excellent job at moving that conversation on mm. so yeah i thought it was very good as yeah. well as i said yes um with the other two guests so i went in with one opinion and came out with another mm. um listening to how england and other european countries have <coughs> dealt with the with, with their reform in in drug policy so it was very interesting, and the guest speakers are very interesting. I suppose, Sean, do you have a um, an opinion or a theory from listening about it? Yeah, yeah, I do actually. It's and, and from your lived experience as well, it's yeah. vital to hear your voice on it. You know. Yeah, and that's the I think that's the interesting thing about the whole um, <clears throat> conversation around this is that for me, I, my my opinion on it changed over over the last while. Um, but I do think for me, a big one was I would hear a lot of people talking about decriminalisation and, you know, legalising it. And a lot of the people that spoke about it didn't have a lived experience. So 
I think some people try and drive it, but they don't understand, like Angie's saying, the impact that it has on people that have a lived experience of being in addiction currently or had past addictions. And I feel that it should be something that's driven through somebody that is currently experiencing it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, like, ask them, what is it they need? Mm. Yeah. So, the community know? and the services. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's similar to what Angie said, you said. Yeah. I, I, I would be looking at the the individual mm. and, and looking at what's best for them mm. as opposed to, like, looking at, it, you know, what's good for the government or what's good for, you know, whatever the case may be. Mm. It's like it's like in a lot of different things mm. the person has forgotten about. Yeah. And I think that's where I was coming from with my point because in our community, and I'll only speak for our community because we're doing it around our community, we, for me personally already, we have lost too many people, you know, and, and, and that's why I wanted to be about the people because people die from substance. We don't know what's in the substance. If we have more regular control over that, there is a theory that we could be able to make a safer and more harm reduction for people who are using it. Um, there's obviously abuse and, and, and different elements of it that we'll have to look at, but we could have interventions ready to try and support them um, yeah. after the harm reduction and stuff mm. like that because yeah. I think at the moment we have no control over it. Yeah. So why not gain a little bit of control and perspective yeah, it around it? It definitely yeah. makes sense that if you were to have more control over what the person is actually taking and you know what's in it and you know what safer, it is, yeah. it's obviously a lot safer. Mm. And, you know, that's ultimately what the aim should be, is to try and make it as yeah. safe as possible for the individual so yeah. as we're not losing people, yeah. so as people are not doing off. Yeah. And that's the reality of what's happening in this community on a regular basis. And we hear it in the news all the time, people yeah. shop because they owe out money and stuff like that. If 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 people aren't selling it on the street and that's that option is gone as well, um, you know, there's less there's less violence, you know. Um so that was another uh, kind of area I was looking at trying to gain some control back on for us. But um yeah, it was really interesting listening to both of you and uh, thanks very much for coming in today. Um, I suppose yesterday with our other two guests, um, Liam had done um, a project in 2004 around services and how they deal with services with mental health, uh, a service, what was the word he used? I don't want to use service user, I want to use participant with a mental health issue and a substance issue and I suppose for yourself Shani when you were going through the services how how did you find that um, because the, the stats were quite high when he done the research in terms of them not being equipped to deal with both do you know exact same yeah yeah so my my mental health stuff was never recognised yeah it took for me to lose a full time job and be at like I was close to having a proper mental breakdown, like, I was yeah. just just there, like, you know, and yeah. I was getting suicidal thoughts, and it took for that to happen to me, to be sent to, a, like, an intervention, to be sent to a CHQ to check me over to make sure I wasn't lying, because yeah. the job didn't want to be paying me sick pay, yeah. and I fought them on it, because I genuinely knew deep in my soul that I was unwell mentally, yeah. and so the doctor there was able to tell me that, yeah. but right up to that, I've and like I'm not gonna tell you the services, but we've been yeah. in all the services across Dublin, yeah. all the treatment centres, all the detoxes, 
highly qualified nurses have been in the mall and they never ever recognised that I was suffering with a mental health illness. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, just your experience, yeah, maybe. I, I was just going to say that, like, uh, I'm in my career uh, 22 years and um, I'm from Ballymore as well and uh, there's, I like, I don't have enough fingers to count the amount of times I was sent out of hospitals with young men or young girls who were um, clearly had mental health issues and were using substance to cope with their mental health issues and I was sent out of mental health services with them and told to go access a drug treatment service mm. because they wouldn't allow the two they wouldn't deal with the they yeah. wouldn't acknowledge that one is connected to the other and they're yeah. intertwined and you don't really have it's the chicken and egg with mental health and, and substance it really is like mm. so it's great that the you know there's a lot more conversation now on dual diagnosis and the recognition of that and i think a lot more um resources need to be put into that area mm. i really do because the amount of people i wouldn't um sit here and lie to you I, where I've no, been sent away. I've experienced it myself. <laughs> I think that's why I threw that question out there, especially, you know, um, while I have you here in the room, because Liam's findings from his research were, and he didn't do the research on his own, he'd done it with a few people, were in 2004. Mm. We're now in 2023, which mm. is nearly mm. 20 years ago, and they're only starting to yeah. acknowledge the both of them coexisting together mm. so it was very interesting listening to yourself Shani and to Angie about your experience both in work and in your life mm -hmm. around that topic um, and maybe hearing it now in the podcast people will start to stand up and talk about it as that this is something that is real and it's it, it, they live together they coexist together you know yeah and I think if if we're educated more around it and there's more free speech around it I know for me like I <coughs> have my own business now which is SK Life Balance it's going really really well and I love doing what I do yeah. and like Angie spoke about I meet constantly meet people mm -hmm. and they have mental health issues yeah. and they they don't even understand it yeah. they yeah. don't they don't they don't know yeah. so I'm lucky that I have that awareness and that experience that I'm able to sit with them and have coffee and just chat with them yeah. like I don't try and fix them and I'll tell them there's nothing wrong with them mm. I just treat them as a human being mm. and they feel great because of that and they yeah. smile at me and they're happy yeah. because I'm not I'm not putting them in a box you know I'm just yeah. saying how are you how are you getting on today mm. how are you feeling and you know I tell them about experiences that I have with my daughter or, mm. and they they light up because mm. it reminds them that mm. they are the same as me mm. they are like they have potential they are a human being they have a daughter and they have love to give yeah. you know and I think the mental health stuff robs us of that yeah. it, it takes that that natural connection with another human being away from us and it's a very very lonely place to be and I think a lot of people who have spoke about mental health have talked about that people you know when they came out the other side that it was that initial person like what you talked about Angie that you know showed them that human concern and interaction and um, spoke to them and listened to them and heard them that that was a turning point for a lot of people um, so it's very interesting to hear that from you Sam. I just wanted to say um, 
we will put up SK Life Balance. I got it right this time. <laughs> Skills Life Balance. <laughs> um, with the podcast. So if everybody, anybody wants to get in touch with Shawnee around support or how we can support them. Um, and obviously we'll put up Easy Street Star. We're always there um, connecting with the community and connecting with people who are looking to make change or in um, that pre-contemplation and stage. Also real quick, I'm, I'm going to be starting to do an online, free online um, four-week well-being workshop that's going to be going out in starting in April. I'm not sure what night. I'll let you know when when I know the night. Um, but it's going to be a free event yeah. to help people with their mental health and to give them a space that they can they can explore meditation, movement, chatting, building confidence, journaling, goal setting, all of the good stuff. Um, and can they reach that on your um I'll social media pages? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be on yeah. it. I'll be on, it'll be on Life Instagram Balance. Live. Yeah, and it'll be happening on my page, which is SK Life Balance. Yeah. So there you go, folks. So again, thank you to our two guests who come in today and uh, we really appreciate your time and hearing about your um, experiences both as work professionals and both as growing up in this community. So thanks very much again. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Jimmy.